Well, let's start off with our memory verse for this series, and that is Acts 1a, and it says, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1a. You are already saying it with me. I didn't even have to ask you to do it. But some of you didn't know that was the cue. So let's all stand and say it together one time out loud, okay? Say this with me with all your guts. Still, church, let's lift it up. Say it with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1 8. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this beautiful day, for the blessing of rain, and for the reminder that you continue to feed us what we need. And that includes your word today. We ask you to speak to us in a powerful way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated if you would. I'm so grateful that you're here. I want to remind you of something that happened in our life when our kids were little. You know, I remember Steve Jobs, when he was promoting the iPhone, used to say, the best camera is the one you have on you. However, when we had little kids, there were no iPhones with cameras. And so we had those old things called camcorders. You guys remember those camcorders? And so when the memory was being made and you wanted to record it, you would go and grab that bag that had the camcorder in it. You hoped the battery was charged and you would start videoing. Well, my second oldest daughter, Kennedy, what she would do is she would run up every time we had the camcorder out and she would always say in her little high-pitched voice as a two-year-old, she would always say, see me see me. And what she meant was, will you turn the viewfinder over so that I can look at it and I can see me on the camera? I know you're trying to create a memory, but I want to see me, right? And as we've gone back over the years and watched these home videos, every time I am reminded when Kennedy is saying, see me, see me, that that's the way most of us, I would even say all of us, begin our lives for the first few decades trying to say to the world, see me, see me. I want to accomplish a couple of things. So see me, would you see me? And then somebody will see me, I like get a promotion or I get married or I have this boyfriend or this girlfriend or I have this kid and they're starting to turn out okay. And and every accomplishment that happens, every friendship that happens, I want to look around and go, hey, did you see me? Did you see me? And somebody will look and I'll feel good for a second, but after a while their gaze doesn't fully satisfy. So I try to accomplish something else. And we spend years walking this world going, see me, see me. And then something real sinister happens at around age 40, (laughs) where all of a sudden it dawns on us that no one's gaze, no one's attention actually satisfies me. And if we're not careful where we will gravitate toward, we've all done this, is that place of cynicism. Because we're driven and wanting to be seen, but we've discovered that there's no one who can see me that will satisfy me. And so now what do you do? What do you do when you want to be seen, but no one's gaze will satisfy you? Well, that kind of stinks, doesn't it? 
I mean, after all, no one wants to walk in a room and be unseen, forgotten, or overshadowed or overlooked. And that's the way this life can feel at times. What do you do when you want to be seen and that desire never goes away? But no one's gaze can fully satisfy. And the longer you are on earth, the more you know that is true. And that's why I think today's story is so profoundly helpful. As we today are going to look at a man named Stephen in scripture. And it's the end of his life. And he answers that question once and for all. I just want to tell you, as a human being standing in front of you, that I am going to do my very best to teach what we're going to look at today. But I don't know if there's ever a message that I felt was more important, more powerful, and more weighty, and I felt less confident to share than the one I'm going to try and share today. So I'm going to ask you in advance. I'm not trying to lower expectations. I'm actually trying to raise your expectation to be engaged in the message that we're going to look at today because I think it's that profound. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to participate right out of the gate and do this. Would you just silently, even if you don't attend this church, you're not even sure you're a believer and you're here today, would you just silently pray this prayer? God, help me see what you want me to see in your word today. Would you just quietly pray that prayer in your heart? God, would you help me see what you want me to see in your word today? And then I want you to do this. you got to stay engaged because it's so good what we're going to look at today. And I'm not confident that I've done a good enough job to keep you engaged, but I know the message is so important. So let's look at it together. It's in Acts chapter 7 where we see the answer to this lifelong question that we all have in Acts chapter 7. If you don't have your Bible, man, there is a Bible in the pew in front of you. I would love for you to get that. I want to encourage you to always bring your Bible. Even bring a pen or grab the pen in the pocket in front of you there and and write in it. This is a living, breathing Word of God. It is the only reliable source in our life. And so I think we ought to bring it every week and look at it and mark it up. And then we got it to take home with us during the week. It continues to be the supreme authority in our life. And so when we come, it's not based on the words I have to say. We're looking at the words that God has given for us that transcend all of time. And so this is a powerful opportunity to engage in his living, breathing word. Acts chapter 7. If you don't know where Acts is, you can just look at the table of contents like you would any book. Find the book of Acts. Turn there. We're going to look at chapter 7 today. Now, some of you might be here today and you're like, wait a minute, we're in part seven today? And yes, we are. And you go, well, I didn't catch chapters one through six. Let me catch you up in four bullet points. Number one, we saw in Acts 1 that the Holy Spirit showed up and all of a sudden the supernatural of God begins to take place. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not a what but a who. Third part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is a big, big deal that the Holy Spirit showed up and has been moving on earth and is still alive and powerful today. We must grasp that truth and we saw that right at right out of the gate in Acts chapter one. And then we saw the second reality is that these disciples, these followers of Jesus, these apostles, they became witnesses. Just like Acts 1, eight said they were empowered to be witnesses. They went from being afraid of everybody and hiding when Jesus was crucified to all of a sudden being bold enough to stand before the Sanhedrin and saying, Jesus rose from the dead and I will go to my dying day saying that. There's a bold twist that happens in their life. And then the third bullet point would be 
that thousands of believers, thousands of people are becoming converted. They're becoming Christ followers right there in Jerusalem. And fourth and finally, and this is important, beginning in chapter 4, in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, we'll continue, see it continue. All of a the sudden, there's persecution that's beginning against those who are following Jesus. Every chapter, it's as if it gets risen a little more to the ultimate that we're going to see today at the end of chapter 7. So if you've missed the last few weeks, you're all caught up. And today we look at chapter 7 and we look at this man named Stephen. And you go, who is this guy named Stephen? What's the big deal about this guy? Has he come some long lineage of royalty? And the truth is, no, we don't know that much about him except that he shows up. And apparently he's this really faithful man of God who also is willing to be a servant-minded human being. He's named a deacon because he's just a faithful person who's serving others. And because he becomes a deacon, we are reminded, you might be here today and you think, you know, I do things behind the scenes. I don't do things on stage. People don't necessarily know my name. I'm just quietly doing things in the background. And what we see in this man named Stephen, who is honored to be the very first martyr in Christian history, and this may be an encouragement to you, but God tends to use humble people to do great things. And if that's you today, be encouraged. God tends to use people like you to do the great things in moving his kingdom forward. And the scenario as we set it up today, because we're about to dive into the story, here's what's going on. Stephen has had these false charges brought up against him, and now he's going before the most influential, powerful board. It would be the equivalent of our Supreme Court today. And they have the right to take his life, and they can decide when and how his life is taken. And they bring up these false charges. Imagine being in that moment. And then they look at him and they say, Stephen, what are your last words? And we get to see his last words today. And I think it's some of the most profound um, insight to answer that question. What do you do when you want to be seen, but no one's gaze will satisfy? Let's look at the story together. And I believe this is sacred ground as we look at this passage Acts chapter 7, look at verse 1 with me as we begin this story. Then the high priest, this is the high priest that's there in the Sanhedrin, asked Stephen, are these charges true? This is the way chapter 6 ended with all these false charges where they twisted words. Are these charges true? In other words, we're about to make our decision, Stephen. What do you got to say for yourself? And he knows whatever he says will determine his fate. Now before we look at what he said, let's put ourselves in his shoes. Because he has the undivided attention of the most powerful people in his world. Now let me tell you what I would have said. I would have sent out some emails in that moment to LifePoint and to any other church I could think of. And I would have said, would you pray for this one thing? Would you pray I get released safely? Right? Wouldn't you pray that? Or or I would go and I would play the victim card. I would say, this isn't fair. You know I didn't do what you're claiming I did. Or I would try to like lawyer up and I would say, look, I'm going to have a defense attorney. I'm going to sue you into next week, right? Or I would have tried to kind of bow up a little bit and I would say, do you know who I am? I am Stephen. I'm a deacon of the church. Look, you see Luke over there recording all of this? One day he's going to write a book, and when he does, there's going to be a church called LifePoint. 2,000 years from now, they're going to spend their entire sermon on this very story. You know who I am? But instead, watch how Stephen responds. Verse 2, it says, 
he replies, brothers and fathers, with humility he connects with them. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia and before he lived in Haran. And he said, leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. I don't know about you, but that's a really odd way to begin your response, your one rebuttal with the undivided attention of the most powerful board in the world who have these false charges against you. And he begins to tell the big story of Scripture to the people who are experts in Scripture. Like, what's he up to? And what we see in Stephen, we're going to see it through the rest of this chapter, is this. The secret to having a meaningful life, according to Stephen, is to acknowledge that I am part of a bigger story. It's not, I'll put it this way. These four words are critical and I have the hardest time living this out even though I believe it's true. It's not about me. In fact, will you say those four words out loud with me? Say that with me. It's All right, some of you said it and some of you are like, ask somebody else will say it, but you need to say it out loud, Okay. It is about you participating, all right? But this time I want you to emphasize the word not, okay? Say that again with me. Those four words, it's not about me. Say it with me. It's It's not about you. Yeah. Now look the person beside you and say, it's not about you either, buddy. Ready? No, I'm kidding. Don't say that. Don't say that. It's true, but you don't have to say that. Some of you are way too excited to look at them. I've been waiting. I've been waiting all morning to say this to her or to him. Stephen, right out of the gate, says, I know you expect me to talk about me, but it's not about me. And he begins talking about a much bigger story. And you might think, well, what is the bigger story? And this little outline I'm going to give you, I think, is the hardest thing to believe and act on every single day. But it is transformational if you do. What's the big story that you and I are a part of? Because we have a choice in this life to live for the little story of me or the big story of God. What is the big story? Well, number one, the main character is God. Isn't the hardest thing to not make the main character me? Each and every day in every conversation, in my thought life and in the way I act, in the dreams that I pursue, I want it to be about me. But the main character is God. The second part is that the plot of the story, of this big story, is to make God's name great. I'm tempted to make my name great. And the reality is, as we look into the conflict or the script of the story, it's good versus evil. Here's the temptation, is I can look at what's going on in the world around me and I think it's that politician, it's that political agenda, it's that thing that that person said, it's this conflict in my marriage, it's this challenge at work, and I think that's the script and I forget, oh wait a minute, I need to pull back a little bit because this is a much bigger issue of good versus evil that's going on in this world and I'm going to keep my eyes on the big story and not get lost in today's little story. And then we look at the hero of the big story. And his name is Jesus. And we all have a hero void in our life. And we fill it with influencers, with athletes, with musicians, with spouses, with kids, with co-workers, with professional idols. The reality is there's only one hero that satisfies and his name is Jesus. 
And in this big story, it has a very clear, predetermined ending where evil is defeated and we will all receive rewards and judgment in the end. I believe it's Hebrews 9.27 that says, it is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. It's the ending for us all. That's the big story. And I'm tempted every day to live to my little story. The little story of me where I'm the main character. Where my agenda or plot is to make my name great. And Stephen in this moment, he doesn't fall for that distraction within him. Instead, he immediately starts talking about the big story of God. I love how laser focused he is. And what's real interesting is over the next 45 verses, which I'm about to summarize for you, he actually gives a summary of the entire Old Testament to experts in the Old Testament. It'd be like me giving financial advice to Warren Buffett. Hey, Warren, I know you've done pretty well, but let me give you a few tips of some things I've noticed that you've probably overlooked. The Sanhedrin is listening to Stephen, who's actually going to give a real quick Old Testament survey or summary, and I want to give a summary of his summary. But if you ever want a great summary, this is it in these next 45 verses, because he gives the five main characters in the Old Testament, and it begins with a man named Abraham. This is an important character in all of history because it's Abraham in 2000 BC who was chosen by God to form a nation through whom the hero, Jesus, would eventually come 2,000 years later. This is where the story of redemption begins. And so if you want to see the story, if you write in your Bible like I do, you might write beside verses 4 through 8. You want to see the story of Abraham? Just write down Genesis 12. That's where his story begins. And then he moves to Joseph, the second major character in the Old Testament, who I believe is Joseph's or Abraham's great-grandson, who had ten brothers who eventually betrayed him, sold him into slavery. He goes down to Egypt, a neighboring nation. However, he's eventually promoted because of God's favor to become prime minister of this nation, which is important because eventually there's a famine everywhere around them, including Israel. And so his own family comes to Egypt looking for food and they find refuge for the rest of their life in Egypt. If you look for his story, you can write down between verses 9 and 19, the story of Joseph begins in Genesis chapter 27. And now we fast forward the calendar to around 1500 BC and we are introduced to our third character, Moses. Moses, 400 years after the Israelites show up in Egypt, eventually, unfortunately, they become enslaved because Egypt sees these growing Israelites as a threat. And they want to be freed, but they aren't until God raises up a man named Moses who he brings down to Egypt to free the Israelites from Egypt and takes them back to the promised land. If you want to read the story of Moses, you can turn and you can mark in your Bible between verses 20 and 44. You can write down Exodus 2. That's where the story of Moses begins. And then our third and fifth major characters that Stephen talks about in the Old Testament are David and Solomon. We fast forward the calendar another 500 years to around 1000 BC now. 
And we see the second king of Israel is a man named David, who really was the king of Israel during the prosperous years, the military and political powerful years. And then he has a son who some say, scripture says, is one of the wisest to ever live, who actually builds the great temple that these Sanhedrin would have been very reverent toward. So he mentions Solomon building that temple. So he went over in 45 verses, a thousand years worth of history, the Old Testament's five major characters, and he looks at them as if they're seeing or hearing new information. What is Stephen up to in telling all of this to the Sanhedrin when his life is on the line? Is he just trying to give a history lesson? No. He's saying all that to say, don't lose sight of the big story which you and I share And now he's about to make a split in their story. He said all that to make a main point, and I want you to see it. We pick now up in verse 48, where Stephen continues to speak. After he said Solomon built a temple, verse 48 says, However, the Most High does not live in a house made by human hands, As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? He has not my hands made all these things. He's referencing Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. And then look what he says. The tone changes and his boldness really kicks up because this is where I am very different from Stephen if I were in this moment because look what Stephen decides to say. You stiff-necked people who can snuff out my life whenever you like, however you like. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Couldn't have been a greater uh, insult. You are just like your ancestors. Is there any worse insult? You always resist the Holy Spirit. He's really cutting to the chase because they don't even recognize the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit showed up after Jesus ascended into heaven and he's saying, you're missing out on what it means to follow Jesus. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And if that isn't enough, look at the charge he goes on to make. He goes, you think you're charging me today? You're the Sanhedrin. You're the ones that condemned Jesus to death. And he's the one who brings the ultimate charge against them in this moment. Look what he says. Was there ever a prophet of your ancestors that you did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous. When all the prophets at the end of the Old Testament, major and minor, you killed them. And then he goes on to say, and now he makes it personal. And now you have betrayed and murdered Jesus. And in this moment, he goes on to say, you have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. And the whole time, he never did any of the things I would have done. And watch their gentle, kind response. And when the powerful, influential members of the Sanhedrin heard what Stephen had to say, they were furious furious, and gnashed their teeth at him. I think that's called spitting mad. When you're gnashing your teeth, when you're gritting your teeth, you are so angry, you're seething. There is a deep rage they feel because what 
Stephen has done is he's pointed the finger at where they are guilty, at where they are broken, at where they have sinned. And none of us like that, do we? And they're experiencing that, but the difference is they've sort of got a, a, a seat at the table. If they're walking through life saying, see me, see me, they have a role where they think they're being seen. And now when someone comes and says, you're just a murderer, you're just a sinner, you're doing everything wrong, you're disobedient, you imagine how they feel. They've built everything on others' impression, on others' opinion. And now they have someone they see as beneath them, accusing them of being the worst of all. Oh, they're mad. And does Stephen begin to shake in his boots out of fear because now the most powerful people are seething and furious at him? No, because he's no longer looking at horizontal relationships to try and find his satisfaction, to try and find his worth. He's, he's begun to live life very differently. So I want you to see how he reacts in the moment of stress. He says, it's a scripture in verse 55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, see, you will receive the Spirit and you will be empowered. That's Acts 1.8. This is one of those moments. Stephen's needing to be a witness, but he doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't have the strength. But he's full of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, he has the boldness. And I want you to see these next two words. I would underline them in my Bible. He looked up. Why did he look up? Here's why I believe he looked up. I believe... Stephen looked up in this moment because he's learned how to look up in his life. Because the truth is, what do you do when you want to be seen but no one's gaze fully satisfies? Stephen just gave us the answer. You look up. You look up. You quit looking to other people to give you what you need. You quit looking to other people to give you what you want. You look up. That's why we see in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 6, we continually see Stephen say, said about him that he's full of the Holy Spirit, that he's full of God's grace, that he's full of God's power, that his face even shone like an angel. And here we see in chapter 7 again that he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And as soon as crisis comes, guess what he does? He looked up because I believe that's what he's learned to do in his life. He's looking up and he's living his life for the big story and he's looking up up to the main character of the big story and he's trying to fulfill the plot of the big story to make his name great and when he's under the greatest pressure in his life he doesn't look around he doesn't look forward he doesn't look back he looks up again but watch what he sees when he looks up in the rest of this verse it says he looked up into heaven and when he looked up into heaven he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I would underline, I would circle the word standing. And then he speaks again after seeing what he just saw. And he's trying to tell others, look. Again, I think this is the call of our life. We're just ordinary people pointing to an extraordinary God. And in this moment, that's exactly what Stephen does. He looks at the Sanhedrin and he says, Look, you think you're powerful? You think you're influential? Look, I see the glory of God. And look what he says. He goes, look, I see heaven open. And the Son of Man standing. I'd circle the word standing. At the right hand of God. In the next few moments, I mean minutes, Stephen is about to have his life ended. 
But in his final words, he's pointing, look, I see heaven open and I see the son of God standing at the right hand of God. In every other instance, when we're talking about the throne of God, it is said that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And maybe it's a coincidence, but I don't think that's so. That in this one example, we're told that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Why is that? I believe in this moment, God sees his own. And he stands to welcome him home. And Stephen is about to stand face to face with the Son of God. He's about to stand face to face with his Savior, God the Son. And he's once and for all going to finally be satisfied by someone's gaze. As he stands face to face with Christ his Savior. And one day, If we make Jesus our Savior, we too will stand face to face with Jesus. And it's in that moment where the gaze, see me, see me, that we've been longing for our whole life is finally and fully satisfied for all of eternity. As we learn that we were created for an audience of one, it was never about me. It was always about him. I've been longing for his affection. I've been longing for his love. I've been longing for his affirmation. I've been longing for his forgiveness. And when I experience it face to face, I go, this is it. This is that aha moment where what I've been longing for, I finally am in the presence of. But here's what Stephen did that was different. He decided while he was on earth, he would live for that audience of one. That's why he was full of the Holy Spirit. That's why he was filled with God's grace. That's why he was filled with God's power. That's why his face shone like an angel. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God even to the very last moment. He decided at some point that each and every day he would re-surrender. Like Paul said, I have to die daily. He would re-surrender to live his life for the one whose approval mattered. And I would not waste my time thinking that I need someone else's approval. I need his and I will live for it alone. And that is how. What do you do when you want to be seen but no one's gaze fully satisfies? Stephen teaches us, look up. For we were never created to be satisfied by others who were created. We have been created to be satisfied by our creator. We aren't created to be satisfied by his gifts but by the gift giver. And Stephen learned that somewhere along the way. But watch how his story ends because now we're about to see the Sanhedrin react the way we react when we're focused on the approval of other people. They all of a sudden become elementary school students in verse 57. At uh, Stephen's proclamation, it says, at this they covered their ears and they began yelling at the top of their voices. Well, isn't that very mature? Yeah, I think I'll follow you. Yeah, yeah, you've really figured it out, right? And then it says, they all rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him. 
This is a way of communal execution where no one person was responsible for the execution, but everyone took part in the death. This is a real important reminder because Stephen obeyed his way into this execution. He didn't do something wrong the way we often think bad things happen to us because we've done something wrong. That's possible, but he obeyed his way into this valley. Now the truth is, God doesn't always respond to our prayers with an escape. Sometimes he just provides the courage to endure. Sometimes he just provides his presence to walk with us. Sometimes we just cling to the faithfulness of God in the eternal big story. Well, now we get introduced to a brand new character. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named, say that last word with me, Saul. I would circle that word because for the first time we're introduced to a person who in two chapters, chapter nine, his name, he'll have an encounter with Jesus and his name will be changed to Paul, who becomes one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. And this is the first time he's introduced and we see how he starts off, by the way. We should never give up on anybody because if Paul can be converted, anybody can be converted. There's hope for any of us. I want you to see Paul. Apparently, Luke wants us to understand that Saul had a hand in Stephen's execution. That he was like a sinister, back shadows kind of orchestrator of what we're witnessing. Because he keeps bringing up his name in this scene. Meanwhile, while they were stoning uh, Stephen, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he falls to his knees and hear his dying words. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Very similar to the prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross. And when he said this, he fell asleep and he died. Now, why is his death really a big deal? Well, number one, he's the very first martyr. As we're upping the persecution throughout the book of Acts, we're wondering, where did this whole Christian thing come from? Where did this whole church thing come from? Well, we're seeing it happen here. As one great historian said, it's the blood of the Christians that became the seed of the church. And here we begin to see that happen with Stephen. And it's in this moment where we also see the church begin to expand from Jerusalem. At this point, everything that's happened has happened in Jerusalem alone. But then we see a very chilling and haunting verse. Do you see it in Acts chapter 8 verse 1? It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. Of all the things we say about Paul and his resume, this is one that's part of his resume as well. He approved of the murder of Stephen. And then it goes on to say, and this is real important, this is the pivotal verse where everything changes in the book of Acts. It says, on that day, and I would circle the word great, a great persecution. This wasn't just like an individual, a couple of folks in one little region, but a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and I'd circle the word all, and all, except for the apostles, were scattered. Where were they scattered to? Through, I would underline these next two regions, Judea and Samaria. Does that ring a bell? Do those two names ring a bell? Listen, this is the pivotal verse because up until now, Jesus had said, I want you to be witnesses throughout Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're through seven chapters and so far, you know what they've done? They've been witnesses in Jerusalem. 
They're like, I got you, Jesus. Someday we'll do that. Got it, got it. But man, this is just great. Holy huddle, things are going well. Got a little persecution, don't like that. We really need to stick together now. So it's like the, the ante has been upped and all of a sudden there's the kind of persecution that forces them into Jerusalem, out of Jerusalem, into Judea and Samaria. And if you look down at verse four, it says, when they got there, they began to preach the word wherever they went. And so I want you to see Acts 1a and realize it's actually the outline for the entire book of Acts. Look at Acts 1.8 where it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's stage one. You could also say that's chapters one through seven of Acts. And then you will go into all Judea and Samaria. That's stage two. That's actually Acts 8 through 11. In other words, we've just pivoted from one stage to the next. And then you will go to the ends of the earth, that's stage 3, Acts 12 through 28. It is an outline of the scripture, and what happens is in this very passage, we see pivot from stage 1 to stage 2. Here we're going beyond the walls of Jerusalem. The gospel is finally going to begin to spread, all because of the persecution that began with the first martyr, Stephen. It's a pretty significant moment. In our story, the story of God, the story that we are all a part of. We're here in Plano, Texas, getting to experience the gospel because of this very story. It forced the gospel out of Jerusalem into the rest of the world. And finally, it says, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply. By the way, it's very possible for a believer to have both grief and hope. But Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged out both men and women and put them in prison. Whew. That's a pretty bad day to have that happen. You know, if, I bet they didn't like their assignment. I, I bet they thought, why did I have to be born in this era? Why here in Jerusalem? Why did these have to be my circumstances? And they didn't choose any of those things, did they? I don't know where you are, but maybe you don't like your assignment. You wish God didn't put you here, but he did. And maybe sometimes you long to have been, um, maybe to have lived in a different era. But God chose to place you here and now. Maybe sometimes you wish you didn't have your circumstances, which God has allowed because he has you on assignment in this place at this time with these circumstances. And to be faithful like the first century Christians were, that wherever they went, they preached the word so that more people could come to know Jesus, so that they could be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. This is our call, and we have incredible models to follow. I want to close with three questions. Three questions for your week. Number one, as you look at the fact that sometimes it's possible to obey your way into difficult circumstances. So the question is, is there an area of your life that's difficult right now? Could it be that your obedience has taken you into that valley? How are you responding to him? How's the conversation with God going? about your difficulties. Number two, a meaningful life 
begins when you surrender the little story of you and you join the big story of God. Man, that's a lot easier for me to say than for me to do. And I know that's the case for you because today's surrender won't be enough for tomorrow. You got to do it all over again tomorrow. We wake up every day going, see me, see me. Here's the question. Is God asking you to do something that you're ignoring, that you're avoiding, or you're delaying in your response or obedience? And what is the obedience step for you to take? Then number three, God is at work even when we can't see it. Stephen had no idea what God was about to do. Those first century Christians had no idea what God was going to do throughout history. Here's the question. Are you looking to your current circumstances or feelings to measure God's activity in your life? How can you rest this week knowing, not wondering, you can anchor in knowing that God is at work even when you can't see it? Let me just close by saying this. I know you want to be seen and not forgotten. I know you want to be known and not overlooked. And there is a God who lovingly stands in heaven right now and he is inviting you, he is inviting me to look up. And my question to you is, how will you look up this week and find satisfaction in the only one who can give it? Would you stand with me? I want to pray. And then we're going to sing a song together and then we're going to celebrate with baptism because guess what? Church of Jesus Christ continues to be built. It continues to be expanded. We see where the blood was shed. It's been shed for century after century after century. And we get to see the fruits of so many who sacrificed again today as people take this public spiritual step to say, I'm all in and I'm joining the big story of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we get to stand in the shadow of a legend of our faith and to see the sacrifice that was paid first and foremost by your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross so that we could be restored in a relationship with you. And so many have laid uh, the trail before us. God, may we not get distracted with the story of us, but to refocus on the story of you so that others can know you as their Lord and Savior. Oh God, give us a renewed focus, a renewed passion for you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.